I, before I dive into reading the scripture, let me set this up. Um, so at this point in the history of the nation of Israel, the Israelites had been essentially governed by prophets who were called judges. Samuel is the last of those, and he's getting really old. And the people of Israel wanted a king. They made a lot of noise about it, and so God finally said, okay, fine, you can have a king. And so Samuel anoints Saul as the king of Israel. Um, and there's a young man under Saul who is really good-looking, um, is, is kind of a man's man, sort of a leader of men kind of guy. He's a great warrior, um, and he becomes famous, essentially, for being a really righteous person and a great warrior, and his name is David. And Saul becomes intensely jealous of David. And so he spends years chasing David around the wilderness trying to kill him. And so what we looked at last week in 1 Samuel 24 is where Saul is pursuing David, and David gets the drop on him. They're in this cave in the wilderness in Engedi. Saul goes in there to use the bathroom, and David and his men are in there, and Saul doesn't know. And so David has this terrific opportunity to kill Saul, and he doesn't. He makes an intentional, conscious decision not to do that. He cut a little piece off of his robe, and Saul never even knew that happened until after. Um, and the reason why David did this is because he's acting in humility here. He's, he's surrendering to God's will. He knows that God has made Saul the king. He also knows that God has promised him he will be the future king. And then in the meantime, God's going to protect him. He doesn't need to avenge himself. He doesn't need to kill Saul so that he can become king. God's going to take care of that in his own time. So we see this picture of David being a really humble guy. Well, the Bible's really good about, about the time we look at these characters in the Bible and we start thinking, well, that guy's a superhuman. The very next chapter, you get an example of how he's not so super. Well, this is, this is what this is. 1 Samuel 25 is David kind of going off the rails a little bit, at least to begin with. So in the Bible, what you see a lot of time is narrative that is not normative. And by that, I mean just because you see somebody doing it in the Bible doesn't mean that it's a good thing to do it. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. And in this case, it's definitely not. So let's look at this first chunk of the book. 1 Samuel 25, verses 1 through 13. I'm just going to read this. All right, now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. Is that like California? The man was very rich, so maybe it is. Yeah, he had 3,000 sheep. And a thousand goats, he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. 
Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal, and in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who's David? Who's this Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Okay, so a little context here. Basically, David and his crew, like this army of 600, is like the A-team. Do you guys ever watch the A-team on TV? Anybody? Right, so it's like these, you know, these guys who were you know, in the military, and they end up out of the military, and they're like soldiers for hire, except they don't really take money, and they help weak people and innocent people, and there was this actor named Mr. T, and he played this character, B.A. Baracus. You guys remember this guy? He would always say, I pity the fool. Remember him? Well, maybe he should have said, I pity Nabal, anyway. Um, but seriously, that's what these guys are like. That's what David and his men are like. They're protecting vulnerable people, because the wilderness, where you take your sheep, is a dangerous place. Um, and David and his men are basically taking payment in sheep and goats and food and things like that, and so they protected Nabal's flock now. Um, and so they came on a feast day and just asked him, hey, can you help us out? Um, so Nabal, in response to that, stiffs them, and then he goes a little bit further and personally insults David. Um, Nabal is a fool, obviously. In fact, his name means fool. But Nabal's foolishness, frankly, isn't the problem here. David's reaction to Nabal is the problem here. Fools will be fools. They aren't the problem. Our reaction to them is the problem. David just spared Saul. He was humble. He honored God by not killing Saul. But now, David's reacting to Nabal out of pure pride. No doubt, Nabal has leveled quite the personal insult at David. He sarcastically asked, who's this person, David, that I should give him anything? Nabal knows who David is. Everybody knows who David is. Samuel has anointed him to be king. He's got an army of 600 men. That's kind of hard to miss. He has a reputation. He was known already they said Saul killed his thousands, David killed his tens of thousands. People knew who David was. Nabal knew who David was. Nabal's just betting that Saul's going to kill David. Or he's just not thinking at all. He's just being arrogant. I mean, you can just imagine in response to the way Nabal has talked, the, the thought that's entering David's mind when he hears what Nabal said. Who does this little piece of lint think he is? I'm David, the future king of Israel. I protected his shepherds. Now he refuses to give us anything for our trouble and acts like he doesn't know me. He doesn't know who I am. I'll show him who I am. Me and my 600 guys with their swords. 
And you just hear the pride welling up in David. And in a split second, he reacts to the insult from Nabal by swearing not just to kill Nabal, but all the men in Nabal's house. David spared Saul, who was trying to kill him. Now he's going to commit mass murder in response to an insult from a known fool at that. Does any of this hit home for you? You know that ring a bell? I mean, look, we all act out of pride sometimes. We all react out of pride sometimes. I think that it, this comes in two really common forms for me. One is active aggression, and the other is passive aggression. When someone injures my pride. Have you ever reacted to a personal slight with like an overwhelming display of anger? Like a huge, big, stinging comeback? I mean, we don't strap on swords and go kill people. I get that. This looks different today. How about this? Have you ever been unfriended on Facebook? I have. That hurts. And the worst part about it was I couldn't like post a really witty kind of insult about that person on Facebook and them see it because they had unfriended me. <laughs> that really hurt. I mean, that's, that's, that's how it works today. Um, I was reading about last night about this woman in, in Tennessee who, who was unfriended by a her brother into going over there and killing the couple who unfriended her on Facebook. Now, she probably got something going on here that's, right, like, that's a little out of the ordinary. Um, And I know you haven't killed anyone over an insult. But here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21 through 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What's Jesus saying there? That's, bear malice toward, in your heart toward your brother is equivalent to murder. Think about that for a minute. We're not all that different from David. The Bible says pride goes before destruction. And this puts our culture, the place where we live, in a real pickle. Most people get that reacting violently to an insult is a bad thing. But at the same time, the culture is advancing this narrative all the time that pride, selfish pride is a good thing, that that religion of self-esteem that's being pushed at you all the time. But if pride is good, what do you do about all the really bad things that come out of it? Never fear, psychology is here. (laughs) So instead of calling pride a sin, that leads to sinful violence, I give you the newly minted condition of intermittent explosive disorder. They call it IED, which is also the acronym for improvised explosive device. Anyways, here's how the DSM-5 describes this. (laughs) A behavioral disorder characterized by explosive outbursts of anger and violence, often to the point of rage, that are disproportionate to the situation at hand. For example, impulsive screaming triggered by relatively inconsequential events. So the culture is saying, if your pride, which is good, leads to really vicious behavior, don't feel bad. You've just got a mental condition. 
It's not your fault. You just need to love yourself as you are with IED and all. Something in us just knows that ain't right. We aren't resigned to live a life of prideful anger. People with intermittent explosive disorder aren't resigned to that fate. What we really need and what we really want is victory over that. What we need isn't a psychological diagnosis. We need a new identity in Christ, an identity that is insult-proof. Sometimes we don't respond to insults with immediate aggression. Um, It's possible that some of you may just nurse a grudge for years, waiting for the right moment to completely obliterate the person who wronged you. Uh, Revenge is a dish best served cold, isn't that what they say? Are you the Count of Monte Cristo? You guys know this book? The story of the Count of Monte Cristo? Edmond Dantes is betrayed by his friend, the Count Mondego, and ends up in prison. And in prison, he meets this extraordinary, incredibly educated man who teaches him all kinds of things he would never have learned had he continued on in his life as a blacksmith. And this prisoner also has a map to the greatest treasure in the world, and he gives it to him. So going to prison, that's not great, but, you know, it's starting to look pretty good for Edmund Dantes. And then he, gets, he escapes prison, and what does he do? He spends large amounts of this fortune creating this elaborate plot to get back at the Count Mondego. I mean, the guy just doesn't know when he's won. Pride can really blind people. It can blind us. It can blind us to the fact that Jesus has already won the victory for us. Pride has blinded David to the fact that God has already determined his future. His future, the future of Saul, the future of Nabal. He doesn't have to do all that. Because God loves us and he wants us to have victory over our pride, he puts people in our lives who are no more perfect than us, but love us enough to run the risk of speaking up. We just have to listen. When we're caught up in the moment, what we sometimes really need is just the help of others to see what we're doing and stop before it's too late. This is the next big lesson from 1 Samuel 25. Sometimes God uses people to help us like Abigail helped David. So let's read this next section um, from verse 14 through 35. This is kind of long, so hang in there. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when they were in the fields. As long as we went with them, They were a wall to us, both day by day and by night. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all of his house, and he's such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and 200 skins of wine and five sheep already prepared, five seahs of parched grain, 
and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David, who is obviously still fuming. Now David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord when you, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lies of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal such a, so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. So, yeah, that's my sermon. There you go. <laughs> right? I mean, it basically, this one teaches itself almost. Um, the, only, the only challenge we have here is just teasing out what we need to in the time that we have. The first thing I, I would note here. Um, I'm going to generalize here. This is kind of a broad statement. There probably are exceptions to this. Not very many. Um, men and women are equal, but women are more equal at communicating. <laughs> any, any, uh, anybody disagree with that? Keep it to yourself, fellas, if you do. Um, so Tanya and I lived in northwest Arkansas for 10 years, and we became big Arkansas Razorback fans, the Arkansas, University of Arkansas 
sports teams. And they played in the College World Series this week. And they won the first game. They are playing the second game. If they win it, they win the College World Series. They're up one run. It's the top of the ninth. Oregon State is at bat. They have two outs. The batter has one ball, two strikes. So one more strike, one more out. Arkansas wins, College World Series. Never won it before, right? So, I mean, we can hear the cheering in, from Fayetteville, Arkansas, all the way here. So um, the batter, because he's behind on the count, just takes a swing at something, and it pops it up. It's way high. It's going down the right field line and starts to drift foul. And three Arkansas players converge on the spot, and they're all looking at each other, and no one says anything, and the ball hits the ground. If any of them had caught it, they win the College World Series. Well, the next pitch, the batter gets on. He hits a base hit. And then the next batter hits a home run. Oregon State won game two, and then they go on to win game three. And I told Tanya that if it had been the lady Razorbacks, they would have communicated with each other and decided who was going to catch that ball. <laughs> but, guys, we, we struggle with this. And the truth is, I think what we see Abigail do here is for everyone, but, it's, but fellas, it's especially for us because this is especially hard for us. This is really hard for us. Um, Abigail's speech is the longest speech by a woman in the Old Testament, even longer than anything by Esther or Ruth. It's really pretty amazing. Um, so I think what we should do here is let's just take this speech apart in sections and like really zoom in here on what she does and how she does it. The first thing I would notice is that Abigail made haste. It says then Abigail made haste and took all this stuff and put it on a donkey and tore off after him. And as soon as, as, soon as Abigail heard what Nabal had done, she took action. She could have waited probably and hoped that by the time David got there, he had calmed down and would listen to reason. But I think Abigail's wise enough to know that things don't get better with time. Um, especially bad things like this. They just don't get better with time. It just gets worse. The more you stew in it, the more angry you get. The bomb just won't diffuse itself. Here's what Ephesians 4.25 says to us as Christians about situations like this. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Because if you do, when you wake up tomorrow, it's just going to be worse. Your heart's going to get hard. It's going to make it that much harder to reconcile with people. Abigail is right here um, to go, to not wait. One of the um, greatest regrets of my life is um, a couple of years, a few years ago, my, um, my first cousin, um, her name is Mariba. Um, we were really close. We grew up together, and uh, she was like a sister to me. And her and her husband became addicted to prescription drugs. Um, and I don't even know how that happened. Um, but in the middle of all of that, she was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. And her husband, Don, um, who was a really cool guy, um, Love fast cars and fast motorcycles and just my kind of guy. And um, He just got into this dark, really, really dark downward spiral 
and I was spending a lot of time down there in Dallas with them, and I could see this where this was going. And um, I had the opportunity, and I don't know why I didn't, but I never said anything to him. I never talked to Don like I really should have. I don't know if it would have made a difference. And unfortunately, now we'll never know. Um, Mariva died of cancer, um, and Don just kind of went off the rails. And a year later, he killed himself. And I, I regret every single day that I did not make haste. Make haste. Don't wait. If there's someone in your life that's in that really dark place, go. Get up right now and go. Don't leave it. Okay. The next thing I notice about Abigail in this passage is, that, and this is a really hard thing for guys to do, she is really humble and sacrificial in that moment when she meets David. When, David, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. So Abigail, of course, is immediately just acknowledging the fact that David is in a position of authority and she's at his mercy. He's the future king of genius here is the way Abigail acknowledges his authority. She repeatedly calls him my Lord. She refers to herself as your servant. He's not the king yet. She's not his subject yet. She knows that he will be and she will be. And then she throws herself on his mercy. She asks David to take out his wrath on her. Now, Abigail knows the character of David, and I think she knows that he's probably not going to kill her, even though she's offered herself as a sacrifice. She's done nothing. She's harmed no one. And yet she offers to stand in the place of Nabal and his people. I mean, there's an incredible power in this kind of sacrifice. I think it's a large part of the incredible power of the gospel itself. Isn't this what Jesus did? He was innocent, and yet in whole death for us, the nables of the world. The sacrificial humility of others can really jar people out of their pride. It certainly worked on David. The next thing I notice here about Abigail is that she shows David what the unintended consequences of his anger will be. She says, please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord who you sent. Nabal's a fool. But the rest of his household, they're not fools. Abigail's not a fool. She wasn't even there when Nabal insulted David. If she had been, I'm, I'm thinking she probably would have gone around behind his back and given those young men what they came for. David's prideful reaction to Nabal, if it's carried out, will cause great harm to Abigail and also all of Nabal's household. David said he was going to kill them all, and he would have. 
And then Abigail would have been left in the world destitute with nothing. In this culture, in this day and age, if anything had been left of the estate of Nabal, it wouldn't go to her. It'd go to his brother, who might be a fool too. Who knows? But this beautiful, righteous woman, godly woman, wise woman, would have been made destitute by what David was planning to do. And this, frankly, people, is one of the most practical reasons not to avenge yourself, to never avenge yourself. It's nearly impossible for you to get even with the right person without doing harm to the wrong people. For one, you're mad. You can't see things clearly. Secondly, there's almost something we don't know. David, when he purposes to kill Nabal and all the men in his house, he doesn't even know Abigail. He doesn't know she exists. And this is the problem for us when we're angry, when our pride has been wounded, and we set out to do someone harm. There's always some piece of information missing that would be necessary for us to calibrate our vengeance to hit only the right target. Leave vengeance to the Lord. Leave vengeance to the Lord. His aim is better than yours. The next thing Abigail does is she asserts, and this is some real bold stuff here, she asserts the sovereignty of God over the situation. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you, the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. So Abigail is pointing out here that God in his sovereignty has reserved for himself the right to vengeance. And the sin that David is committing here is he's trying to avenge himself. He's trying to save with his own hand. And Abigail knows what David knows. Abigail knows that David knows the law. Here's what Here's what the Bible says. Vengeance is mine. God said, vengeance is mine. Deuteronomy 32, 35. That's not qualified language. It doesn't say vengeance is mine except or unless. It just says vengeance is mine. It's one thing for the state to punish a person for a crime. It's entirely another thing for us as people to take vengeance on others. We are not to do that ever. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. When we take revenge, when we act angrily to somebody's insult or somebody's slight, what we're really doing is we're putting ourselves in the place of God. We're, we're saying to God, yeah, I know, but let me, let me, I, let me, let me do that. I'm, I'm going to squeeze in here. And, and God is pretty jealous about his sovereignty. Um, he gives us things to do and reserves things for himself. Um, a, a really good example here is actually relevant to David. Um, in God's law, he gave a particular group of people the responsibility and the privilege of offering sacrifices to the Lord. And Samuel was one of those people. He was of that tribe. Now Saul has gone out and he's won this big victory over the Ammonites and he wants to pursue after them and defeat them fully. But before he does that, he wants to offer a sacrifice to the Lord to bless him 
which is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. The problem is Samuel is late. Where is Samuel? Man, I got to get down the road, man. If I don't hurry, I won't be able to defeat them. So he loses patience. He builds the altar. He makes a sacrifice to God. And then Samuel shows up. <laughs> he says, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have done that. Because you've not offended me, Samuel, sacrifice maker guy. You've offended the Lord. You have done what he did not give you to do. We should not be taking vengeance because that is something that God has reserved for himself. The next thing that Abigail does really just renders all of this vitriol that he's got for Nabal just completely moot and ridiculous. Abigail reminds David of God's promises. She says, For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. I love that sort of reference to the sling there. I wonder if that's intentional or not. We recall David and, and his slaying of Goliath with the sling. Um, I, I'm, I'm guessing that Abigail knew that story. Most people in Israel would have. So Ab Abigail here is reminding David that God has promised to make him the king of Israel. God has promised to vindicate David. God's promised to avenge us. God's promised to protect us. So why should we care about the insults of other people? Seriously, if your identity is in Christ, if your future, your eternity is secure, and that eternity is going to be more amazing than you can possibly imagine or could ever describe in words, why do we care about what people do to us or say about us in this life? It's pride. It's pride. We're still trying to save ourselves, build our own identity, and when somebody pokes a hole in that, pushes the wrong button, our pride is wounded and we act. We can react very angrily, or maybe could just be hurt, brood over it. Pride is such a fragile thing. You ever notice that the biggest egos need the most constant maintenance. Um, I've been working for six years at this company in Marin, and our CEO um, is, is kind of a self-made man, really. I think he would describe himself that way. He came up pretty hard. His, uh, his father wasn't around, and his mother had some struggles. And uh, he dropped out of college and went to work at the Gap and basically worked himself into a position of being the president of Gap Stores, the U.S., and from folding T-shirts at the Gap store to running the entire company, and then moved to Pottery Barn, Williams-Sonoma, did the same thing, and then over to Restoration Hardware. And he he's, he's not a tall guy, he's about this big, and he has an ego that's about this big. <laughs> right? Gigantic ego. And you could see how that would happen, right? I mean, he's been wildly successful. He's a very rich man, um, you know, 
got the sort of the prototypical 26-year-old girlfriend and the Bentley and all that stuff, you know, the, the things that the world thinks of as success. And so lots of stuff to build that ego up, but it's like a gigantic black hole that sucks in everything all the time. And ultimately what it's doing now is it's eating people. That big old ego is just gobbling up humans. Use, 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 throw away. Use, 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 throw away. That's what happens. And David could be on that path because God's promise to make him the king, he's going to be the king. He's wildly successful. He's going to be a rich man. He's going to be famous. He's apparently good looking. I mean, without, frankly, without the intervention of the Lord, he almost certainly would turn out to be some huge egotistical jerk. And I think what's happening here, I think what God is doing is orchestrating this near miss so that David can be humble, so that he can get really close to do something really awful out of pride, and then God uses Abigail to snatch him back, just at the edge. Abigail, what she does next is she helps him see what the future can look like without guilt. She says, and when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. So Abigail is pointing out that the future God has promised David is a great future. So why do this thing and ruin it? Mass murder isn't a thing that just goes away. If David is a man after God's own heart, like Samuel said, and he was, then we would expect and Abigail would expect David's conscience to be plagued with guilt, to be like a big dark cloud over his reign. So God has used Abigail here to keep David from this horrible deed. So it's no surprise that what happens next. David thanks God for Abigail. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to, to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. If you only get one lesson out of this sermon, this is it. Know who the Abigails are in your life, because there are some. Listen to them and be thankful to God for them. Here's, what, here's some, some great scripture here, just three passages. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise, Proverbs 15:31. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise man 
than to hear the song of fools. Ecclesiastes 7.5. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James 1.19-20. One of the beautiful things about being in Christian community like this is that we have people in our lives who love, and love us and they'll tell us the hard truths we sometimes need to hear. There are people in this room who love you. They love you enough that when they see you going off the rails, they'll say something. Now, we need to be careful who we listen to, no doubt. A little caution about that. Um, God could use basically anyone to show us the truth, but we need to exercise some discretion here, and sometimes we can't always tell. So when someone is telling you something about yourself, that's really hard to hear. Get in the habit of asking the Lord to help you be receptive to the truth and let everything else go. It's just a simple thing to do. Someone's telling you something, it's really hard to hear, you feel yourself getting defensive or angry or hurt, pray about that. Ask God to help you see the truth of it if there is any, and then just let the rest of it go. You're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit for this. We all are going to need the power of the Holy Spirit to listen well. So ask for it. Ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to help you listen well. Um, the last thing I wanted to do is just sort of throw down a challenge for you. And this is really a challenge for all of us. Whose Abigail will you be? This may be part of what God is doing. This may be part of what God is using you to do. As Christians, we pray the Lord's Prayer. In it, Jesus taught us to pray to God that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if we really mean that, we might should accept that at times, God may use us to see that his will is done on earth. He may use you in the life of another person. Sometimes that means God is going to use you to say things to people in positions of authority. Things that may be hard for them to hear. You may stand in opposition to the course that they're on. I mean, God doesn't actually need us to accomplish his purposes, but by his grace, he's using us. He allows us to have a part in his grand design, the realization of the reconciliation of all things to God. We get to have a part in that. So whether we do or say, whether what we do or say will be effective to achieve the purposes that God has is entirely up to God. He controls the outcome. And once we really get a hold of the fact that, okay, God is using me, but how smooth I am how witty I am, how clever I am, how artful I am doesn't determine the outcome. God determines the outcome. Once you get that, then your ego is just taken completely out of the equation. Right? It's, it's, not, it's not me. I don't have to be this perfect thing. I don't have to be this perfect thing that can be so easily wounded. You're now free. Free to do what God has you to do. You can do it humbly because it's God. It's God doing it. 
He's just using you. And you can do it with boldness because it's God. You're talking about Jesus here. That's something to be bold about. If you want to be used the way Abigail was used, then some really practical advice here. And I seem to always end this way. Read your Bible. Be acquainted with the Word of God. And then pray that God will use you the way Abigail was used. If you find yourself in a situation where the gospel would make a real difference, then whisper a prayer that God will humble you and give you the words to say. And then open up your mouth and speak. Speak the truth from God's word. Tell people what God wants them to hear, not necessarily what you want to say. We need to set aside what we want people to hear and in its place tell people about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is kind of what I think, especially when we were talking to people in positions of authority, this is kind of what Christian activism might look like if there's such a thing. I mean, we do believe in social justice here at our church. It's in the Bible. It's a thing that Christians should be about. Abigail provides an outstanding example of how to do that. I'm so thankful for this story in the Bible. To speak humbly but boldly about how the gospel of Jesus Christ applies to the situation, to the policy, whatever it is. And it's not us. So we don't have to have our Christianity reduced to a bumper sticker or a a placard at a protest or a bullhorn. We don't have to do that. We can be like Abel, Abigail rather. We can be the voice of, of God in that situation, him using us to share the gospel person to person. This is how the world gets changed. This is how the world gets changed. So let me pray that we will be able to do that. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word and for the power of your word and for the example of Nabal and David and Abigail, especially Abigail and her intercession, her very Christ-like intercession on behalf of the innocent people in Nabal's household and and, uh, for the effect that that has on people who have ears to hear and eyes to see. And Lord, I just pray that you would make us witnesses, witnesses to your righteousness, your holiness, to the amazing gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make us effective, Lord, for you. Empty us out of ourselves and and the identity that we've built for ourselves, this construct of a person that we want people to see, and replace that, Lord, with the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit. Conform us, Lord, into the image of Jesus Christ and, and make us like Jesus, like Abigail in these difficult situations. Keep our hearts soft, Lord, and our ears open. And give us wisdom so that we can hear when people are trying to tell us difficult things. Help us, Lord, to have discretion and to to hear the truth in what people say and let the rest go. All of this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.